Whenever I get gloomy with the state of the world, I think about the arrivals gate at Heathrow Airport. General opinion starting to make out that we live in a world of hatred and greed. But I don't see that. Seems to me that love is everywhere. Often it's not particularly dignified or newsworthy, but it's always there. Fathers and sons, mothers and daughters, husbands and wives, boyfriends, girlfriends, old friends. When the planes hit the Twin Towers, as far as I know, none of the phone calls from the people on board were messages of hate or revenge. They were all messages of love. If you look for it, I've got a sneaky feeling you'll find that love actually is all around. Hello and welcome to What Is Love Actually with Beth Amon and Patrick Flynn. She's Beth Amon. And he's Patrick Flynn. This is the podcast where we try to discover just what the 2003 romantic comedy Love Actually is. By taking it apart. And putting it back together again. We did it. We Well, we haven't yet. We actually have to put together oh. it back together again now. We took it apart and well, we did that part. We did and, the bulk uh, of the work. And we, I did realize, getting ready for this... We made a promise, you know, like I really, I really have to deliver on this promise. This was, this was our fault because we made lofty promises in 2019 when we started this process. We did. And then a couple other things got in the way. Sure. And then the process got expanded. And then listening back to the episodes, I forgot a lot of the things (laughs) that we promised. We we say, I said some things (laughs) and I'm really glad to listen to the episodes to be like, well, that's a teaser I have to deliver on. I better Mm -hmm. go figure that one out. Better figure out the answer to that question. um, (laughs) I binge watched About Time last night because I had said like several times, I'll watch it. It got to be like 8 p.m. last night and I went, Shit, I said I was going to watch that. So I watched, <laughs> I had the Ravens game on my TV, and uh-huh. I had About Time on my phone on Netflix. <laughs> As the way Richard Curtis intended you to the watch it. The way Richard Curtis intended it. <laughs> but it's okay. The Ravens lost really, really sadly, so I stopped watching them and focused solely on About Time. Oh, okay. And then I cried. So oh. really, Richard Curtis still got okay. me. Okay. Well, I, didn't, I hadn't watched that yet, so I'll, uh, it's on my queue. I don't think you'll like it. I think you'll hate it. So don't watch it. <laughs> now I have to watch it. You've, we've made it all the way to episode 12 here, Kang. You've made it all the way, all the way through the movie. Now we're going to put it back together again. And there's some housekeeping I think we should do at the very beginning to say this is not the last episode of the podcast. We will be back. It's not? It's we not. will? Yeah. What? This is entirely yeah, new we'll information to me. There's that great Catholic University acting training. <laughs> yeah, we're going to have an episode out Christmas Day where we're going to... We're going to do a few things. We're going to be watching the two Red Nose Day specials that accompany two Richard Curtis movies we watch. There's Red Nose Day, actually, which is the sequel to Love, actually. And then there's um, mm-hmm. Four Weddings four weddings, and, the four weddings and a Funeral one, which I don't remember the name of off the top four of Four Weddings head. and a Funeral, actually. That is the name. That's what it's called? No. <laughs> no, that can't be what it's called. No. Uh, why did I fall for that? I fell for that so hard. You're like, oh, yes, of course. Beth, the movie expert on this podcast, <laughs> right. must know. <laughs> Beth obviously knows things. <laughs> it's called whatever it's called. And we'll be also be answering your emails. So if you have comments, questions, concerns, public admissions of guilt, email us to loveactuallypod at gmail.com. 
But I think you're much more likely to get your comment on the air if you record a voice memo and send it to loveactuallypod at mm. gmail.com because then I can just edit it right in and play it. Mm-hmm. And then that shows that you put in the extra effort and makes me and Beth go, hey, this person really mm-hmm. wants to be heard. And then you mm-hmm. can hear it. Yeah. That's just a suggestion. And then after that, I think we're going to be back again. We've been talking about a few things. We're going to keep uh, this feed going. So don't unsubscribe. Keep it rolling. There's going to be stuff probably once a year, maybe twice. We, we've talked. You know, we'll see. Years are a construct at this point. So who but knows? Where, where, where do we begin, Beth? Where do we, where do we begin to put this thing back together? Where do we start? I don't know. I thought about this, and I really... You know what I want to start with? Gang, I have a thing. I'm going to have a soapbox I'm going to climb on for a moment, and then I'm going to climb right back off it. There is no comma in the title of this movie. I don't know why people, myself included, have written the title of this movie as Love, Actually, but I see it all over the place, including in some fairly reputable online news publications. Mm Mm-hmm. There is no comma in the title of this movie. It's just love, actually, because the sentence, as we know, is... If you look for it, I've got a sneaky feeling you'll find that love actually is all around. Not, it's love, actually, which would then necessitate the comma. So that's it. So Soapbox over. There's no damn comma in the title of this movie. <laughs> I've grown weirdly protective of this movie, Beth. In, in like the last 72 hours, Why? I have What has say, happened in the past 72 I, hours? You realized uh, it was coming to a well, close and you felt sentimental. No. And then decided you couldn't let it go. No. The real magic of Christmas has finally found you. Definitely not. <laughs> One thing is re-listening to all these episodes. So it took us over a year to record all these episodes. And in the last weeks, I've been re-listening to them to prepare to talk to you today. In listening to the episodes and listening to everyone's reactions to the movie, I have grown... I don't know to like this movie better, but definitely grown to be like some kind of weird ownership over its legacy. Not like the movie itself, but the, the, the way people perceive it. And and actually, in a weird way, this movie led me to the works, or back to the works, of uh, filmmaker Paul Thomas Anderson and his two movies, specifically Boogie Nights and Magnolia, which I want to talk about later, and how that connects to this movie in a very I'm gonna way I'm going to need to Google those films. Which should not come oh as a surprise God. to you. I thought you knew that. It does, actually. No, it continues to surprise me. I continue to be surprised that you don't know about movies that came out when you were, I think, seven and nine. How dare, how dare I not know these things? So what did we... First of all, I think... What was something you learned making this podcast? What did you learn doing this podcast? I do feel like I've learned a lot about movies in general. And I think that's also mainly because of talking to you. But I, I, I've enjoyed learning how one person's canon um, can be so beloved to some, and people, other people, have absolutely no understanding of who this person is. Mm-hmm. I feel like I know way more about this movie than I know about any other movie. <laughs> ever (laughs) and i don't know if that's like a what did you learn like a good lesson or just like what's some useless knowledge you have now mostly it's useless knowledge for me i i Mm -hmm. the -hmm. most exciting thing i learned about in this entire podcast i have to say is the the john lewis advert i i now making that a part of my life You said exciting. No, as soon as you said exciting, my head was going to immediately went to Bob the Builder was a Christmas number one. Bob the Builder. Can we fix it? Bob the Builder. 
John Lewis Christmas advert is now a part of my life. Mm-hmm. It's, it's out cute. right now, gang. There's a link to it in the show notes. It is cute. It is also really... I kind of don't want to ruin it for everybody. It's a weird thing. Like it's a funny having watched it. It's well, like here, put a put a pause, put a pause right now. It says okay. you should pause this and go watch the advert. To avoid spoilers for the John Lewis Christmas advert, please skip ahead two minutes and twenty five seconds. Now, Th- this one was special though because it was a partnership with Waitrose as well. They're not normally right. partnerships, right? So you had. The power of two large British institutions. Well, and, you know, for an ad that I went back and watched several years worth of John Lewis adverts, mm-hmm. and they're all kind of schmaltzy, mm-hmm. you know, like the Elton John one is affecting. The Elton John one is, is very affecting. Yeah. Uh, but it, it beyond that, they're usually just kind of schmaltzy. But this one is so on point for christmas and yeah, 2020 100 percent. it's just perfect it's just absolutely perfect and that's it it's so well animated it's so well put together and i love that it's it's partially animated and then partially mm-hmm. live action so you mm-hmm. get to see you get to see actors getting work you get to see animators getting work so just from the point of view of giving jobs to people in 2020 and supporting the community like this mm-hmm. is it's advertising some type of charity partnership between uh, John Lewis and Waitrose. It is giving jobs to several artists and it's mm-hmm. delivering this really lovely message about like kindness kind of comes back around to you that it is something that we should all be practicing, especially this year and showing these different circumstances in which you could find yourself practicing everyday kindness. I just thought it was so cute. Yeah. I think it's great. It's it's exactly what I needed. Trying to be a pigeon is so adorable. <laughs> so out of left field. It's just I do I really liked that that you 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 jumped from character to character. You're never really 100% sure which character I was going to jump to. Mm-hmm. I really liked that. We're talking about a commercial here. Well, and but, the, like it coming you know, it back really well around done. at the end to being the little girl who mm-hmm. started it. Yeah, being cyclical like that. I yeah, love that. I liked that and that I was didn't... very good. Yeah. The way they animated her, too, you didn't immediately say, like, oh, look, it's the girl from the beginning. So it was this nice surprise when she got oh, off the I knew because of the, the red well, tape the, on the glasses. Yeah, yeah. The, when she put the red tape on the glasses, I was, oh, that's the girl from the beginning. Because I also did sense we were going to be like that. It was going to loop around. Mm. Uh, but I was waiting for something like that to happen. But you're right. I didn't know until the person fixed her glasses mm-hmm. that who was she was. Yeah. Yeah. It was really it's good. good. It was great. I'm so glad that Johnny and Jesse introduced us to that. Mm-hmm. I really like the dragon one from a few years ago. Oh, see, I didn't really care for that one. That didn't. Oh, uh, I... It was all right, but that falls in the schmaltz category to me. It's really I'd like, like to remind you that we started this episode by talking about how I cried at about time. So I that's think very the fair. schmaltz is my that's category. Fair. And he also said though that I wouldn't like about time. So yes, there we go. See, yeah, but ooh, that's a good segue into mm. something else that I wanted to to us to talk about which is Mm -hmm. when we started doing this podcast i set up a google alert uh Uh for the words love actually yes inclusive and it led to some interesting funny links which i would send to beth every now and again to these news stories that had nothing to do uh, the movie but had the phrase love actually appeared in the Mm -hmm. middle of a sentence and it got nabbed but i will also say this is a daily Google News alert, and not a day went by where something about this movie wasn't mm-hmm. posted. 
especially lately. Yeah. Mainly for two reasons. The first is because of Thomas uh, Brody Sangster. And the Queen's Gambit. Man, the number of articles that exist online that are like, Love Actually, kid, all grown up, and isn't he yummy? Uh-huh. It really make me realize why people hate being famous like it's just because i'm getting annoyed yeah. and i'm not him you know i cannot imagine what it's like being him he doesn't have social media so like i've been i think he's managed to avoid it probably he just got an instagram account within the past six months or so oh i know because i've been tagging the love actually i'm saying are we following him yeah we're following him right. he has like three posts and one of them is about a friend's gofundme so you know he's a nice person Oh, there you go. But I think he's probably managed to live his life avoiding the social media and hopefully a lot of press attention. Yeah, I hope so. Is another reason you keep getting these alerts um, just because this movie launched so many people's careers. Mm-hmm. Yes. Like anytime this is listed in someone's credits, it's just like, oh, Kira Knightley, yeah. Love Actually. Andrew Lincoln, Love Actually. It's the top thing in, in, in every article about Hugh Grant. It's it's one of the first things that's mentioned. It's like the first movie that's mentioned. Which is confusing because he's done a lot of things. He's done tons of movies. It is just, this is the one. This is the one that people keep talking about. All the actors in it. Liam Neeson, Emma Thompson. Yeah. But so like recently, the articles have gotten, we're getting into the Christmas season, so we're getting some more focused articles about New mm-hmm. Zealand Herald did an article called The Weirdly Popular Christmas Movie That Isn't Actually a Christmas Movie, which isn't about love actually, yeah. but it was ranking the most popularity of Christmas movies around the world. Mm-hmm. Love actually placed number one in New Zealand, Australia, England, Spain, and Norway. And you know, England is not surprising. No, not at all. Elf was the most popular in six countries. Nightmare Before Christmas also took the top spot in a few countries. But the reason the article has that title is that Gremlins, the nineteen eighty four Gremlins, was the top top the list in other places like Brazil choice. and France. Um, takes place at Christmas, but is not. It's even less of a Christmas movie than Die Hard. Mm. No matter what Evan says, <laughs> it is super not a Christmas movie. It just happens to take place at Christmas. Was Elf number one in the U.S.? It doesn't say what the in the article what the number one in the U.S. was. I would assume, based on how many people so, yeah. took um, disagreement with our scale, that mm-hmm. Elf has to be number one oh, in I, the U.S. I sent you this one that I bookmark here, which is that Richard mm-hmm. Curtis in September uh, did an article in which he said, I have respect for people who don't like my films. All right. I'm going to... He better have respect for this because I think his point in this article is stupid because it's like, I have respect for people who don't like my films if they're trying to better their lives or like change the world. Like, is he saying I can't just gripe about his piece of work because it's crappy? Because I have I have to deserve to criticize him by going out and living the spectacular life and bettering the world so i read that yes and that struck me as a little weird i think the answer is no but the article we read is actually like an encapsulation of another article that was published in a journal about activism and he like was a guest editor or yeah so something like that so it was a little unclear to me exactly what was going on but Mm But it's like a game of telephone. So, like, the whole context of the interview and the article was about activism and social justice and how Richard Curtis is very optimistic about the future because kids are such great a- activists and he thinks everything's Why can't I just be... call out the the bad the bad things? But, well, but that actually runs... Uh, I want to run back to in a little bit because when I was trying to sort of decide how I felt about this movie, that's the kind of thought that I kept having over and over again. Um, 
which is what is this movie really about and what that what kind of movie is it in that sense because that lets you know how you how you should respond to it but this also ties into a question i have for you beth Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. we started this podcast in a very specific place with your feelings towards our auteur richard curtis and uh, i want to know now that we're at the end how much do you how much have you how much is four weddings and a funeral grown in your estimation are you ready to accept it as your lord and savior or are we no not there i'm not ready i (laughs) i really think where we started was that i didn't really know who richard curtis was like i knew that name but i didn't know all of his work and what is considered the canon and i really kind of wish i could go back to that point when i didn't know who he was because now <laughs> i just feel like i have negative opinions about this person who i know has done good things since and like is a charitable person he supports many many worthy liberal causes mm-hmm, he's mm-hmm. a very and, politically active man you know and i can i can support that but i just feel like i now have more to say about what I don't like about what he's done than I do about <laughs> what he has, what I like about what he has done, or also just like being ambivalent, like I was at the beginning. So mm. I still think he writes women terribly after watching About Time. Uh, I still, even though I liked it and I had an emotional response to it, I still don't like the way he wrote Rachel McAdams' character. I think Rachel McAdams did a great job with what she was given, but. The whole kind of like time traveling to trick someone into loving you part is a little, little, mm, little not so not good. Great. Uh, not great. Ooh. But you know, like at the end of the day, I'm probably going to forget about Richard Curtis and will only remember <laughs> him as like a distant nagging voice in the back of my head. Uh. <laughs> With Patrick going, but his TV work, his TV work. <laughs> oh, and four weddings at a funeral. Blackadder. <laughs> I still can't believe you didn't like Four Weddings. No, and I had said too, I will say, I said I would go back and I would watch Four Weddings again. I haven't. You haven't. I will. We'll do that before. We should do that before Before we do the Christmas one. We should watch that and then watch the Red Nose Day special. I will give myself that task. I can do that. Yeah, I think that'd be good. Uh, Really quickly, uh, wrapping up the news thing, I want to say that the other big piece of news that came out in the last month and a half is that uh, Lulu Popowell. Lobster number two. Lobster number one. She's lobster number one. She's first lobster. She's Emma Thompson and Alan Rickman's daughter. I apologize. We've been given our parts in the nativity play. (gasps) And I'm the lobster. The lobster? Yeah. In the nativity play? Yeah. First lobster. There was more than one lobster present at the birth of Jesus. Duh. Lulu Popowell, winner of the Benedict Cumberbatch Award for Most British Name, who's a comedian now, gave an interview for the Almost mm-hmm. Famous podcast with Barnaby Slater, and she had this to say. I think it's aged badly. It's aged badly in terms of um, relationships and uh, Yeah, all stuff the like women that, in it are sure. sort of passive objects. Mm. I think that there was a, an article that described them as passive objects to be acquired, and I, on rewatching, it's not great. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think Richard Curtis has had that thrown at him quite a lot in terms of his films, hasn't he? Yeah, but you also have to remember that he was writing in the context of the time. I mean, I don't know how he excuses more recent (laughs) bits of work. Um, 
but you know it was what it was in 2003 or whenever it was out but it's also not for me because i don't like cheese i'm glad people like it this was everywhere if you were floating in beth and Mm -hmm. my sphere on our version of the internet this was everywhere. This got repeated and repeated and repeated endlessly and endless articles and quotes. And it led to an article in the Irish Times by Marie Louise uh, McConville. This woman seems like, uh, I'm, she seems like the Irish Karen. I didn't want to, I, I paused, yeah, but she yeah. did, like she just seems it's like. got a Karen energy to it. She just seems like an Irish Karen, but she makes some fair points. But I don't know why we need to respond to this article. <laughs> I will put a link to all these, this and all these articles in the show notes so you can read it unedited. But basically, she likes Love Actually. She thinks it's a feel-good movie. She feels that, like, it's a movie we need right now. And this is this is where it gets kind of Karen-ish, where she's like, there's so many, like, dealing with lockdowns and restrictions. We're really looking forward to Christmas. This is a movie that will make people feel good. I mean, okay, yes or no, you can agree or disagree with that. But the ending is something I did not care for, which is where she says, so Lulu, you didn't enjoy making the movie, which is not what she said, and it didn't set you off on the road to Hollywood, but love actually brings joy to many each year, and many now we need this more than ever. Maybe it's return- time you return to being a lobster on stage. One line is about all I want to hear from you for now, on. She has three lines in this movie. Yeah, and they're good lines. And she, there's she's good lines, good and she's actress. good in the movie. I, I, I think she makes some very valid points about the film, so that reaction left a bad taste in my mouth. But mm-hmm. read the article. It's in the show notes if you want to make a decision for yourself then then only two days ago he online published let's settle this once and for all is love actually a good movie we're never gonna settle it we're never gonna settle it we're not going to i was afraid they were chomping our flavor frankly but they're not they just it's a bunch of staff writers reactions to the movie most of whom like it but one that really turned my head was a comment by one of the staff writers that said and again there'll be a link in the show notes so you can read the whole thing saying it's one of the worst movies ever made and gets really hung up on the fact that when you get to the arrivals gate at an airport, you are never happy. You're always unhappy. And I was really sort of like, you're just not a happy person. I mean, like, I've, I have felt <laughs> like, bliss at the just, arrivals gate. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Like people, a family yeah. member picking you up, someone you haven't seen in mm-hmm. a long time coming to meet you. Like, I, I get above averagely stressed when I travel, I would say, as a person. It, it activates my anxiety in a very specific way. And and I don't think my wife can hear me right now. Otherwise, she would be loudly agreeing <laughs> from the other room. And I feel good at the arrivals gate in an airport, you know, when the getting off the plane. Yeah. You know, I want to get to my luggage and I, I want to figure out the rest of my travel. You've done the challenging part. And also the fact that that footage is obviously documentary footage. I mean, it was shot without those people knowing it. So it's like those people are actually happy. That's their genuine reaction. So it kind of undermines your argument. Do you think the people who are in the beginning of it like knew they were being filmed for the documentary well, style portion? Like they would have had to sign waivers, right? Yes, they all had to sign waivers. They did not know they were being shot at the time, but once the footage was captured, somebody ran over and said, "Hey, we just filmed you for this movie. Can we get a release?" I would have been like, "Can I see it?" Like, what what, what did it look like? I'm sure they're all thrilled right now if they're all British because it's, it's so well loved. This is true. This is probably their their Christmas story. Of just, yeah. I was in the beginning sequence of Love Actually. That's right. That'd be a pretty good... I'm surprised I haven't seen that on a British sitcom, that joke. like mm. My mom was in the beginning of Brit- Love Actually. That's... Yeah, it'd be a good joke. Call Richard. Tell him he needs to write <laughs> into his next television show. Well, he's available right now uh, because the last piece of news we saw was that he is... He and his partner, Richard Curtis and his partner, Emma Frude, had donated the final frame 
from the movie Love Actually autographed. Uh, they autograph the frame and the, with a note that says, from the original reel of Love Actually, also with a comma. Wow, Richard. Shamefully stolen from the working title studios in uh, 2003. Signed with Love Actually, Richard Curtis. And it's being auctioned off to raise money for the Royal... Hang on, this is a hilariously British acronym. The Royal National Lifeboat Institute. All the articles I read just called it the RNLI, like I was supposed to know what that was. And it was really sitting How there. How do like, you not know about the Royal National Lifeboat <laughs> Institution? I'll have a Come link to the Patrick. article. I'll put a link to the auction in the show notes. It's it's available. It's currently bid at 240 pounds. Mm-hmm. Bidding mm-hmm. ends December 16th. All right, get on it, team. If you they're win, estimating, I want to know. They're, yeah, they're estimating it'll go between like about 600 pounds. So when we will announce the winner. Let me refresh the page here to see if that bid has changed. Mm. It has not changed. Okay, so <laughs> it's still 240 pounds. So there's not a lot of interest here, everyone. Well, I mean, get not, in there. not in the last hour, but, you know, what, what time is it in England? It's late there. Like, yeah, nobody's up right now. So that's what's going on in the in the world of Love Actually right now, 17 years Which after it's, it's released. I mean, it's also just impressive that 17 years later, there is still a world for this film. Oh, yeah. That it, it has had significant staying power and has been... One of the things that people watch consistently every year, it is obviously incredibly beloved by folks in England uh, and And America on TV a lot. Yeah, it seems to be. I mean, the the testament to the fact that we've really had to dig to find two people who hadn't seen this movie. True. And then, you know, love it or hate it. I think our guests really more trended in the love it than the hate it direction. Definitely. I think maybe we found people who didn't like that they were talking about a specific storyline because they thought the storyline was kind of crappy. But overall, they're like, you would still find people talking off topic from their storyline to be like, oh, well, I really like this part and I like that part. And then there's this thing that happens. So overall, like, I think it is still something people enjoy. I think only John and Katie were upset with their storyline. You know, I think (laughs) (laughs) of Colin and Tony. Well, I mean, who would be happy about that? <laughs> oh, but I think it was perfect, though, because John hates the movie. And if that's the best story to talk about if you hate yes. the movie, because no one's going to argue with this you about true. it. And, you know, thanks to them, we were able to solidify the theory that it is either a brothel or a cover yes. of witches. Mm-hmm. So I feel very grateful for their service helping us reach that reach, conclusion. Discover the truth behind this this mm-hmm. sordid story. It's important. We took a lot of stats with these guests, and uh, I wanted mm-hmm. to go over those stats with you, the listener, and Beth. And now, um, it's time for the data-driven portion. Of it our is podcast. yes, yes, for the podcast for you, five thirty-eight fans out there. The mm-hmm. the election is over, and now we can talk about something important. Just uh, just to review, we started uh, the each segment of the movie based on how how British it was and how. Mm-hmm. Um, Christmassy it was and uh, on a nine point scale I will say too mm-hmm. we found very little objection to our British scale and significant objection lots of objection to, to the Christmas our Christmas scale, scale. Con- tons of objection to the Christmas scale yeah people have a lot of opinions about Christmas movies they sure do we'll start uh, as we almost always did uh, with Chris- with the Christmas scores uh, one being the lowest, nine being the highest. To review, one is Santa Claus Conquers the Martians, which which if you've never seen it, go find it. It's completely insane. Number two, not Christmas, uh, like Die Hard or Frozen, Gremlins. Uh, 
three horribly sexist, like New Year's Day or Valentine's Day, that franchise. This is where we started to get into trouble. For Hallmark mm-hmm. Lifetime Christmas movie, Lori Loughlin and Candace Cameron Beer, one of those. But Lori Loughlin before she went to jail. Yes, people got started to get defensive around this section. Uh, five, mm-hmm. a Netflix Christmas movie, like, like The Christmas Prince. Speaking of which, the drinking game has been unearthed. And <laughs> so we'll talk about that in a second. I... Okay, I'm a political. You finish the scale. Uh, Six sensible Christmas film like Elf, Home Alone, The Santa Claus, that got me into some trouble. Seven, the claymation classic like Rudolph, Santa Claus is Coming to Town. Eight, a modern classic like Christmas Story or National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. And nine, a timeless classic like It's a Wonderful Life. And on that score, so here's what I did because I'm me. (laughs) Okay, I. I I averaged the scores together, and it came out mm-hmm. at a three point eight six three, which is a hallmark lifetime Christmas movie, rounding up to a four. Oh, but I'm surprised. But I wasn't satisfied with that. Oh, okay. Because okay. not all sections of the movie are created equal. There is a Fair. wild difference in length. Did you weight this scale? I weighted the scale. First thing I did was <laughs> look up how to do that because I knew I knew I knew that was a thing, but I didn't know how to do it. <laughs> And then I created a weighted average based on the length of each individual segment. Just for the record, episode two, where we talked to Solomon and Josh about the whole movie, I counted that as uh, being the Rufus section, the Rowan Atkinson, uh, Rowan Atkinson section, which is three minutes and three and a half okay. minutes long. So that was their rank. So their rank got weighted <laughs> to that. And the biggest percentage went to both sides now, the Harry and Karen and Mia section. And I ended up with a weighted average of a 4.0. So it's the same. 4.062. Changed the metric. Not at all. Well. Not at all. We tried. Yeah. We tried. It's accurate data is what it is. So that was the Christmassy section. And we're going to pause here. And before we talk about the British section, to talk about the Christmas Prince drinking game. So I had to dig back in my phone real far for this. But also, like, thank God I'm the person who takes screenshots of things. So when Christmas Prince came out in 2017... Um, Javier Del Pilar created this drinking game and then a bunch of his friends got hands on it and someone made this like beautiful little um, Christmas color coded list for all of us to use. Um, I will post it on our social media. I want you all to have Absolutely. this. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. The people but need it this. Just, it, it's just so good. So drink, it's all like just drink when. So one, the boss uses a Yiddish term. Two, cut to converse to establish quirkiness. Three, coworkers give terrible advice via Skype. Four, attempts at covert filming or recording. But like if you've seen this movie, all of her attempts are not covert at all. She's just like full phone out, arm completely outstretched. I have um, to see this movie. Five, any mention of abdication. Six, journalistic, in quotes, notes, you have to chug. Uh, seven gratuitous <laughs> seven is gratuitous exteriors of the fake castle and like that's not a cute castle a lot of these movies somehow find cute castle exteriors this one has like twinkle lights all over it which is hideous <laughs> like and i don't I have to mean to like oh there's movie. twinkle lights lining the outline like they just have a sheet of twinkle lights um <laughs> number eight is aggressively smoky eye which only comes out at the end when she's coming down the ball and so you get a double whammy of the aggressively smoky eye and her showing off her converse for quirkiness 
Number nine is when someone says Prince, King, or Richard. And number 10 is meant to get you wasted because it is when Christmas music plays. Jeez. Be responsible, everyone. Tracy, I will send this to you soon. We will put it on our social media and you can enjoy it. Many thanks to Javier Tepler for creating that. I guess we got to do Christmas prints. I, mm-hmm. I I don't think I could do the drinking game. I don't know if I could hang at, at my age, but we'll see. I believe in you. I believe in I mean, your abilities. I can drink. I went to Catholic University. I know yeah. how to drink. Oh. That skill never goes away. We're both good, like, Irish people who went to Catholic University. We oh, got yeah, this. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we can hang. So the next metric we, we rated it on is how British is this movie? How British was your section? Again, a nine-point scale from one to nine. This one was largely uncontested. Number one is Austin Powers hanging out with Beyonce. Number two, T with your mum and ah kid, which is a Northern English reference. Number three is James Bond watching Doctor Who. Four is Mr. Bean listening to Radio 4, which several people said was more British than a number four. Five is Mary Berry doing maths for her Banoffee pie recipe. Six is Andrew Lloyd Webber doing the washing in his Mm -hmm. kitchen. Not laundry. Not laundry. It was amended. Adjustment. Seven is Harry Potter eating beans on toast. Eight, Mr. Bates serving Christmas luncheon. And nine, Her Majesty's Corgis. So, did the math. And the unweighted average was a 5.2, which is Mary Berry doing math for her Banafi pie recipe. All right. When I weighted it, got up to a 5.5. So it actually moves up to Angela Weber doing the washing in his kitchen. And I think that's where we want to set it. I think the, Because I think the number one thing I learned about this movie was from Johnny and Jesse about really how British this movie is. Me too. And yeah. I started to, mm-hmm. when we would rewatch it, analyze, oh, uh, the, the, the Chiwetel Ejiofor, Kira Knightley Walking Dead section is a lot more British than I originally thought it was because so much of it is about not being able to express your emotions, A. But then B, the ending at the airport is tremendously British because they're not talking about it. It really has yep. this weird, just... very British... So this movie is more British than we ever gave it credit for. So we need to round up as much as possible. I I went ahead and gave um, the movie overall scores oh, from okay. my own point of view. Uh, and I I gave it a nine for British. That's fair. Overall, certainly. It's very British. The whole I thing has just, a very British vibe. Because it's British. It, like it course. is. It just is. And I think having learned the things that we learned from Johnny and Jesse and applying that filter to it is really helpful and also just like when you think about Mm -hmm. all of the like you have reference you have the prime minister as a character you have references to Mm -hmm. the queen you've got people are having tea like there's christmas like you know there's just there's just enough that i'm like ah Mm -hmm. british this is the top of the scale yes highly Mm -hmm. british christmas highly highly christmas i gave it a six and i have no real i know i have no real um thought process behind that no real no, defense yeah, for that i just was like it's christmasy but it's not so christmasy but it's so you would consider this to be a sensible yeah because i movie. think it's something that comes on um network net it comes on networks mm-hmm. over christmas it is something that people maybe get more exposure to at christmas because of the vignette style of it so it is something that people just accept and have in their cultural mind is like oh this is a Christmas film. I will watch this at Christmas. Like when mm-hmm. do you ever watch this outside of Christmas? No, except for us. I don't know that I'm ever going to watch it. I don't again, know about that either. Yeah. <laughs> I will. That's, that's a totally but like, it's I not, will. It's not like a movie you would watch 
outside of the Christmas season. Like if someone said to me like, oh, it's sure. May and I'm watching Love Actually, I'd be like, are you okay? Who hurt you? What's wrong? <laughs> What's going on in your life right now? That's very true. It is It is mega Christmas in that sense, but I don't know where I put it. You know, I kind of trust the math, but uh, I have one more statistic to give you though. Oh, yes, good. So as I was listening back through the episode, one thing we kept talking about was the age gap between Mm -hmm. the romantic partners. I don't know if I want to know this. (laughs) So, I went through all the movies. I went through all the couples, calculated the ages, (laughs) and came up with with an average of the difference between the characters. Now, (laughs) to be fair, I will say, I used the age of the actors in the movie. Because the movie never really tells no. us how old anybody is. So the only thing I had to go on was the age of the actors. I consider it to be fair because, well, it'll probably balance out. It'll all it'll all come out in the wash if I don't try to guess how old the movie wants me to think these people okay. are. If I just take it at face value. I have two different versions of this answer. Because it depends on how you split the couples. So, for example, Rick from The Walking Dead and Kira Knightley are 12 years apart. Okay. I don't like that, but I accept that. Chiwetel Ejiofor and Keira Knightley are eight years apart in age. Better. You know, as I, you know, I don't know. As I'm saying all this too, like if you are a consenting adult and you want to date oh, anyone sure. of any age, that's of great. Do your thing. But I just, I, it's really the thing that gets me is that Keira Knightley and Thomas Brody Sangster are within five years of each other at the point of this filming. And one yes. is clearly squarely placed into the role of a child and the other is adult woman yes. who can get married and have an affair with married man's best friend. Absolutely. And I think it's important also to remember that we're talking about this from a standpoint of, you know, the writer and the the average will reveal what we're actually talking about here. Um, the average of these ages will reveal a something about the difference in age between men and women in romantic comedies, full stop. But so with that qualifier, getting back to what I was saying about which character do I count for the, the metric? You know, do I count all the couples or do I just count one or two? So for the first number, I only included the romantic couple, who, the, the, the central romantic couple of the individual story. Like so that is to review. Couple. Exactly. So Colin okay. and Tony had none. They got, Colin and Tony got nobody. Juliet and Mark. Peter. No, Peter's Chiwetel Ejiofor. So yeah. I. Oh, you're yes. saying Juliet and Mark so are the I, primary? Juliet and Mark are the primary romantic couple of that story. It's Mark's story about being in love with her. Okay. Which is how I, I counted kind of... it, because that's the climax of the story. I did one where I did them both, just so you okay, know. So okay, we're going to okay. get both. Billy Mac and Joe got none in the first round. However, in the second round, I did for fun calculate the age difference between Billy Mac. And Britney Spears? No, the, uh, the woman who plays Greta. Oh, at the end. Who gets off with a plane at Hello, the end. Hello, Greta. <laughs> that one wildly changes the numbers, just so you know. The actual biggest age split, actually there are two of them. It's between, it's between Jamie and Aurelia and Daniel, the Prime Minister, and Natalie. They're the same age split. They are 16 mm-hmm. years apart. The men are 16 years older oh. than their love interests in those stories. I, you know, that digs into a whole a whole lot of things as mm-hmm. we're talking about men falling in love with their employees mm-hmm. and... They're much younger employees. Oh, I don't like that. Yeah, this is where it starts to get weird because I don't think that the movie 
is intending us to be, but it's just a, a product of movies that like the men are in their forties and the women are in their twenties. That's just the way movies are made. Yeah, and that's a problem. Stupid. And if it's the opposite, it's Mrs. Robinson. Right. Absolutely. Interestingly, though, uh, I kind of positive numbers for the men being older and negative if the women were older. Yeah. Just so you know. So, Jack and Judy section, uh, mm-hmm. they're seven years apart. Martin Freeman's seven years older. Okay. However, in the Sarah and Carl relationship, Laura Linney is nine years older than Carl. Yes, Laura Linney. Yeah. Break the stereotypes, Laura. Get it. In... In the Harry, Karen, and Mia story, Ooh. yeah, so I took it to be that the primary couple was Emma Thompson and Alan Rickman. That was my okay. my rubric. I would agree with that. In that case, they are 13 years apart in age. Who's older? Alan Rickman is older by 13 years. I mean, I guess I'm just thinking because they're peer professors sure. at yes. the Hogwarts oh, School for Witchcraft, witchcraft, and, witchcraft wizardry, and Wizardry that they must be of equal age, and that is wrong. That is wrong. However, but also, we learned that Emma Thompson and Hugh Grant are only a year apart, which is also confusing. So, But it's interesting that the age split remains relatively constant between the sensible couples, the mm-hmm. the the big romantic couples, pretty consistent. The women are consistently over a decade Younger than the men. Mm-hmm. However, would you care to guess how much older Alan Rickman is than Mia? 25. 28. Very close. She's 28 Ooh. years younger than Th- Alan I Rickman. Want, I just want everyone to pause. That's how old I was when we started this podcast. <laughs> I'm now 400 years old. And your husband was just the born. Length of the love was born last year. Your husband was born last year. That's what we've learned. Oh my that God. Is, isn't that gross? Ah. The following, uh, the final couple I took to be Daniel, Sam, and Joanna, being the focus, the focal couple yeah. of that story, focal romantic couple. The sweet babies. Anyway, the sweet babies, and and it's actually negative. If, if that's the case, the edge is the spread is actually negative too. Okay. But if you add in your favorite love story in the entire movie, Claudia Schiffer and Liam Neeson, he is. 18 years older than Claudia Schiffer, which is wild. I like that either. <laughs> I did not see that coming. You know, as I, you know, I don't know. As I'm saying all this too, like if you are a consenting adult and you want to date oh, anyone sure. of any age, that's of great. Do your thing. But I just, I, it's really the thing that gets me is that Kira Knightley and Thomas Brody Sangster are within five years of each other at the point of this filming. And one yes. is clearly squarely placed into the role of a child. And the other is adult woman yes. who can get married and have an affair with husband's best friend. So the average, not including <laughs> the ancillary couples, just the primary couples, the average age split in the movie is six and a half years. A little bit okay. more than six and a half years. All right. Just if you include Chiwetel, Greta, Mia, Claudia Schiffer, Liam Neeson... It's 11 years. So it's not a wild swing, but a significant swing. It's a statistically significant swing. So we're just getting around 10, basically. It's a 10-year split. The men are generally, on average, 10 years older than the women in this movie, which feels like a pretty typical Hollywood experience. Obviously, they're British, but this is like a pretty romantic comedy 
the men are going to be probably on average a decade older than their female yeah. counterparts. And once you hit a certain point, like they're like, oh, the men are distinguished now. They're not yes. aging anymore. And mm-hmm. like the women become haggard at 35. Yeah. That's certainly the movie view. Which is rude. It's more than rude. It's horrifyingly sexist and culturally damaging, I would mm-hmm. say. Mm-hmm. And we should say, I think, uh, one thing we need our audience to decide for us once and for I've all decided to it for weigh them. in on. No. Because I think they're going to be on my side. No, I don't think they will be. Schiffergate. Is it weird that Claudia Schiffer is a extant human being in the Love Actually universe and that the actress Claudia Schiffer plays Carol in the movie Love Actually? Is that weird? I would like us to present our final arguments in okay. order to properly inform the audience. Sounds fair. Would you like to go first? No, I would not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fine. I'll go first. Yeah, no problem. <clears throat> Okay. So Robbie Rizal in his episode brought up the excellent point that it is he equated it to being like Bernadette Peters appearing in Smash, the TV show, and not playing Bernadette Peters, even though Bernadette Peters is extant in the Smashiverse. I disagree with that analogy. I don't remember if I brought this up in the episode or if I, I texted it to you, but in the movie Boogie Nights, the which is loosely based on the life of of porn star John Holmes. Mm-hmm. John Holmes is referenced as an as an existing human. Mm-hmm. And some of the movies he's made are listed as existing. Now that bothers me because the life story of Dirk Diggler, Mark Wahlberg's character, mirrors the character they're referencing. I'm sure they did it for lawsuit reasons. But anyway, <laughs> that's a different, that's a, a thing that bothers me. But Bernadette Peters things bugs me because they're working in the world of Broadway. If this were a movie that took place in the world of modeling, and Claudia Schiffer was mentioned to have existed and then showed up playing somebody who was not Claudia Schiffer, that would be weird to me. To me, the, the bit here is there's a woman called Claudia Schiffer and there's a woman named Carol who looks exactly like Claudia Schiffer because in real life she's played by Claudia Schiffer, but it's a movie. And Liam Neeson ends up with a woman who looks exactly like Claudia Schiffer because she is Claudia Schiffer in real life. I think that's a really good joke. And it doesn't bother me at all. Counterpoint, Beth. I think you have actually just created an argument for me because you have said the phrase uh, existed in the world and then you provided a modifier of, of Broadway. Just full stop. Existed in this world. Claudia Schiffer is named in this film as someone who exists in the world of this movie as Claudia Schiffer. We know that she exists. We have Googled her. We have accidentally clicked on the number four result, Claudia Schiffer, naked, naked, naked. Number three result so like, and ask Jeeves, but yes, go ahead. Like, we, we know that this person exists. So by saying that and by also having the support of Prime Minister Hugh Grant telling us things like David Beckham exists, Harry Potter exists, these other cultural touch points and pop culture references are a part of this movie world when Claudia Schiffer shows up and is like jk my name is carol i'm not claudia schiffer we are breaking the rules of this world she exists as claudia schiffer because claudia schiffer exists in this world and therefore she cannot be carol we're not saying liam neeson exists liam neeson is just daniel it doesn't matter that like if someone said like oh i'm watching the movie taken and then liam neeson showed up and was like oh it's not me daniel it's just some guy who looks like me that would also be weird so you cannot have Claudia Schiffer be someone else 
There is no, oh, she just looks like that person when we have established that Claudia Schiffer exists in this world. Point to Beth. Thank you, everyone. No. I look forward to your Sorry. poll responses no. on the internet. No. Redirect. People look like people. That's all I'm going to no, say. No, they don't. I've said it before and I've said it again. People look like people. I kind of just think that like, at this point, are you just digging your heels in deeper to watch me get annoyed? I'm not not doing that, but... <laughs> But I also, it doesn't bother me. It like genuinely doesn't bother me. I've never for a moment swayed from this. You've never been able to sway me on this bit. You, I've heard all the arguments. I remain right, exactly in the I'm same right place. It does not bother me. And it's not, but that's fine. <laughs> but I do honestly want to know what you, audience member, think. Please email mm-hmm. us and tell us. Send us a voice mm-hmm. memo explaining your position on Schiffergate. I am fascinated to hear what the general public thinks about this. Because I think what we ended up with on the episode with Robbie and Rob is that Robbie was with you mm-hmm. and Rob couldn't care less. Yeah. So Rob took both We're positions simultaneously, I think, at one point. So, you know, I want to know if it bothers people or not. But I, I just mentioned Boogie Nights, having watched Boogie Nights recently and then having rewatched Magnolia. This conversation is going to be a little shorter than I thought because you haven't even heard of these movies. I, I would have thought nope. you had heard of them and not seen them. Are you familiar with the movie There Will Be Blood? Yeah. Okay. That's the I Drink Your Milkshake. Yes, that is I Drink Your Milkshake. That's Paul Thomas Anderson. He's the writer-director of that. He also made Punch Drunk Love with Adam Sandler, the master with Philip Seymour Hoffman and Joaquin Phoenix, Inherent, Inherent Vice also with Joaquin Phoenix, which was out like five years ago, and then Phantom Thread with Daniel Day-Lewis, which was out like two years ago, I think. He is my favorite living, working filmmaker. Full stop. I think he's absolutely brilliant. And okay. these two movies that I mentioned, Boogie Nights and Magnolia, they're his second and third movies. Boogie Nights is about the uh, the porno film industry in the late 70s and early 80s when they transitioned from film to video. And is about a large group of people in that sort of family in the in the porn industry, and a lot of characters with their own storylines. But it all centers around Mark Wahlberg playing Dark Dirk Diggler. And then Magnolia is about it's a it's a, Magnolia is a three hour and eight minute epic film that takes place over one day in in and around Magnolia Boulevard in uh, Burbank, California, and is about seven main characters and how their lives. And the journeys they go on and how their lives intersect and affect each other. So that's what brought me back to those two movies mm-hmm. was that uh, Magnolia, Bo- Boogie Nights came out in 1997, Magnolia came out in 99. And Magnolia is one of the, f- is, is one of those movies that, that kicked off this early 2000s multi-plot line thing. Uh, oh. And so that's what brought me back to it because Magnolia is one of my favorite movies of all time. But I don't watch it very often because it's three hours and eight minutes long. And you Sensible. really need to watch it in one sitting to really appreciate it. And please don't watch the Ravens game while you watch it. It's, hey. a, it's an emotionally draining, hard movie that I very much want to watch with you now because I have no idea what your reaction to it would be. Because it's weird and kind of dark and funny and brooding and it's all over the place. But I kept thinking, what is it about Magnolia? structurally not just the fact that you know one is two very very different kinds of movies what is it about the sort of multi-plot structure of magnolia versus the multi-plot structure of love actually and why is it about why is magnolia hang together better Mm. as a story and a better constructed movie than love actually and what i came up with and it's the same thing about boogie nights but Boogie Nights is less of a fractured story than Magnolia is. Magnolia is a lot more like Love Actually, structurally speaking. Is that Magnolia 
is really one story with seven main characters in it. And mm. they interconnect and they weave together and they affect each other's trajectories and stories right. and lives in very direct ways and they break apart again. And some of the characters, you know, they fill in each other's gaps and, and interact with each other and, and complete sections of the other that the other one's missing and they deal with each other, they move each other, they affect each other, they, they change so each other. what you're telling me is that Magnolia is the John Lewis Christmas advert from 2020. <laughs> Yes, exactly. What it took Paul Thomas Anderson three hours and eight minutes to do, John Lewis did it in a minute and a half. <laughs> <laughs> but it is, Magnolia is a lot more like that, unlike Love Actually, which is really ten distinct, disparate, disparate stories that mm-hmm. every now and again overlap to some directly, like Alan Rickman or Emma Thompson. Mm-hmm. But some very loosely like tony with jack and judy or even like sam seeing billy mack on the tv yeah mm -hmm, exactly because everybody saw billy Mm -hmm. mack on the tv we presume you know and for what little we know about how the movie was put together with things like the colin frissel story or at least that that scene at the wedding with him it was something that was written for four weddings and a funeral but excised and then put it at this point. Yeah, movie. as you were asking what's the difference, I really wanted to instinctually say, like, was Magnolia written to be three hours? Whereas Love Actually was written to be four hours by accident and then they had to chop it down yeah, by, by accident and then they had to chop it down by half. Yeah. No, Love Actually was Magnolia was written to be like more like three and a half hours. It was edited down to, to three hours and eight minutes. I mean the screenplay apparently was like 180, 190 minute screenplay, 190 page screenplay. It was gonna be a very long movie from the beginning. They, they he just knew that. This is not that. Love Actually is not that. And I think that's one of my big criticisms of it is the way the stories don't intersect enough. They don't reinforce each other. Yeah. They don't affect each other's plots. When when characters cross over into another storyline, There's story not line, enough of like the butterfly sort of effect of it all. It's mm-hmm. not exactly. that, oh, well, exactly. if, if uh, Harry does go and meet Mia now... Then it will affect Karen, who will affect mm-hmm. Daniel, who will affect Sam, who will affect Joanna, who will ruin the Christmas pageant, and then it will affect David and Natalie ever getting together. Like that isn't those aren't givens. It's more just kind of like, oh, I'm gonna do what I'm gonna do. You're gonna also be over there. And it's not even like Laura Linney, who is an integral component of the Walking Dead storyline. It's not like that interaction means anything for either storyline. It just means something for the audience. The connections are so tenuous, and and it really speaks to the fact that when they show this on TV, they take the Jack and Judy story out entirely, because you can. Mm -hmm. You can just take it out of the movie. You lose time. You lose nothing else, really. Which is also a shame, because it's a very earnest part of the film. Oh, I should also say, during during the episode uh, about Chiwetelogy for Keira Knightley and Walking Dead with Keith and Jill, that... I made the statement that two stories were good examples of love and one is a good story, but not uh-huh. a good example of love. And I teased that I would answer that question in this episode. And then I went, oh, crap, I have to answer that episode. I have to answer that question. You do. Yes. So I do. So the two that I think are good examples of love are Sam and Daniel and Jack and Judy. Agree. I think those Agree. are. And I've talked about why in those individual episodes. I put one other. I put two other. Mm-hmm. After okay. you had said like, oh, I said that I need to answer it. I've had I had those two for sure, and then I had two with question marks next to it. And one, I think it's because I just really want it to be a good example of real love, and that's David and Natalie. But I don't know if it really reaches it. I just I want to believe in that. I want to believe in their storyline. And then the other one I put was 
Billy and Joe. <laughs> I just think that it's like the most um, down to earth example of like the fact that sometimes it is like you just love the one you're with who's been there constantly and who supported you even when you were an asshat to them. Sure. And I think that's a lovely thing for Billy to finally realize it and not for Joe who's been on the mm-hmm. the less than pleasant side of that relationship for a while. But. Sure. I mean that's I would agree. Yeah, I think Billy Mac and Joe, I would 100% agree. That's a that's a third if I were to go back and redo that episode with Kim mm-hmm. and Jill, I would say there are three episodes that are about examples of love because it's Billy Mac yeah. who's the one who realizes he goes to that party and then he realizes Christmas you should be with the mm-hmm. ones you love and I love you. I don't think he dumps on Joe quite as much or at least I don't think Joe is, is not okay with it, with his relationship with Billy Mac, as we all seem to as think we made in that it episode. Seem in Melinda. I think Melinda just was, Melinda was ready to defend Joe to the death. Sure, she certainly was. She considers him the most attractive man in Britain. Beautiful blue eyes. She's ready. I think that Joe's frustration mainly comes out of the fact that Billy just won't do the thing he's supposed to do. Mm. And makes Joe's life harder as a result. And he insults him and he calls him the ugliest man in Britain and, and all that. I'm sure that gets old to Joe after a while, but I think that Joe also knows that they've been together for so long, like, that's just part of the deal. This is my job. I deal with this guy. Mm -hmm. I wish he was nicer to me, and I wish he made my life easier, but he never gets so mad. The scene at the end is never him, like, why do you treat me like crap Mm -hmm. and whatever that. He's like, no. He's like, yeah, okay. He says it's been an honor. It's very quiet validation of, of like, all this work I've put in actually has paid off. Mm -hmm. I wonder. you do actually respect me. I wonder how much of their relationship can be separated. Like if Joe can say like, this is manager uh, time and then this is friendship time. Mm, I don't think Billy would let that happen. I don't think that's being in Billy's life. I think in it's Billy's world and you're just living in it. That's a fair point. The David and Natalie story, going back to what you just said. I think it's honestly, I just find them charming and I want it to work. That's it. There's that's, nothing, that's there's so nothing much of substance movie. behind that. Because, yeah. like, after talking to Tracy and Evan about it, and I actually feel better about it than I did before we, when we started that episode. If before we started this podcast, mm-hmm. I would have tossed that out as a horribly sexist one, a horribly inappropriate yeah. one. But the more – that was one of the few stories that watching it in isolation, it got better. Where I was like, oh, I'm seeing now Hugh Grant, how much he's into her from the beginning. Yeah. And I do now realize why he, like – like the thing that he does at the press conference, I don't like the fact that like they cut to her giving that look and they cut back to Hugh Grant. Mm-hmm. It implies that he's mad at her. And I don't think that's what the the movie wants it to imply. Uh, that's just the Kuleshov effect of it all. But I think you guys, uh, you and Evan and Tracy set me straight on the intention of that scene and that Hugh Grant feels like she, she makes me do these things and I can't be a good prime minister and have her walking around. It makes me do things that are irresponsible and rash. Yeah. But watching the movie... As a whole, that doesn't really come out as easily. But watching it in comparison to like the other relationships that form so rapidly based off of almost nothing, right? You you think like, oh wow, what a great example of stability. Sure, it does. You, it really does. I think in the episode you said like, oh, they had five conversations, and we were all like, oh yes, good, they've had five <laughs> conversations. <laughs> well, they did have five conversations. <laughs> it is also the case that like Richard Curtis knows how to write for Hugh Grant. He knows what Hugh Grant's because strengths and weaknesses are. he is Hugh Grant. Well, he, I mean, I think you're probably right about that. He, he fancies himself Hugh Grant, Grant, certainly. Or he fancies he Hugh Grant He wants to be himself. Hugh Grant, yeah. 
I mean, obviously, this is their fourth movie together. Oh, he yeah. knows how to write Hugh Grant dialogue. It'd be weird if he didn't. He knows how to play his strengths. He knows he's so charming. It's the same thing in the Colin Firth plot line. So much of that, as we talked about with Alexandra and Steve, is because because it's Colin Firth. Yeah. We accept it all because we love Colin Firth. And we want Colin Firth and his big, fluffy turtleneck to gotta, be happy. I gotta and wonder she's so if, charming. if there's a difference in how we as Americans perceive these very well-known actors to us versus how um, anyone in England who is familiar with like the rest of these other actors work. Well, I think what Johnny said was like how famous almost everybody in this movie is in Britain. Yeah. And how they're all TV stars in Britain. So can they just be like, oh, whatever, it's fine. I don't... Yeah. So I... The same way we're able to accept and do, like, understand whatever Colin Firth and Hugh Grant do. Shockingly, after seeing this movie, I don't know how many times, I would really like to see the first cut of this movie, the four-hour cut. Mm. I would really like to know, beyond just the deleted scenes, which are about half an hour. Yeah. So that takes us to, like... Two hours and 40 minutes. But if the original cut of this movie is two hour, four hours long, even if they're exaggerating, there's at least another half hour, maybe 45 minutes of deleted footage. And I would really like to know, what was the big sprawling sto- version mm-hmm. of this story? Were there things that could have redeemed it? Because there's ultimately something about this that is ultimately unsatisfying. And I think it's the fact, the way it's all kind of chopped up. And I would mm-hmm. really love to watch the unbelievably long cut of this movie to know what what was the whole point? What was Richard Curtis reaching for? Because I'm, I'm fascinated to know. I think it'd be fascinating yeah. to watch. And I would hope that, like, what's so great about... You know, I have a lot of opinions about... That I'm not going to voice here about Netflix and streaming and binge-watching and all that sort of thing. But I one of the one of the things we are afforded by something like Netflix is, uh, like, this example, Quentin Tarantino, The Hateful Eight, talking about very long movies, he released a extended edit of the movie that's like four and a half hours long or something instead of just three and a half hours long on Netflix. But it was broken down like a TV show. So it's episodic. So you can watch the extended cut, but you watch it like a TV show in smaller chunks. I would love to see that for this movie. I would love to see the full four-hour version broken down into six half-hour... Wait, does that math work? Eight half-hour segments. My fear, and obviously this would... This would be assuming that we actually get our hands on this long extended cut my fear would be that it still wouldn't be satisfactory well that is certainly that the, even at the, the end of the day it wouldn't actually fill in the plot holes and like make up for the shortcomings that we've found yeah, it's very possible it may not but I, I would be sad but there's something more that richard curtis was reaching for when he mm-hmm. wrote this movie and there are pieces missing and somewhere there's a box of pieces and i would just love to see what the Richard whole Curtis is looks auctioning like. them off for the Royal National <laughs> Lifeboat Institution right now. Richard, I need them. The lifeboats don't need them. Well, there's people in the lifeboats, you know. I mean, it's... Well, okay, just, yes. You know, that's... And that is, in fact, the point of the lifeboat. <laughs> I'm just sort of... Hang on. I'm just doing some math here real fast. Give me a, give a, give me a second. So this movie's 134 minutes long. That's 8,040 seconds. That is 192,960 frames. Just so there's a lot of frames available. He's only auctioning one. He's got so many more he could auction. How many frames are in a second? 24. 24 frames in a second. Oh, that's yeah. so many. Yeah. Persistence of vision. Okay. That's what that's called. Video is 30 frames a second. American video is 30 Holy frames moly. a second. In England and Europe, it's 25 frames a second. 
not in film, in video. Film is still 24. Either way, that's not here nor there. Brought to you by Patrick Flynn. (laughs) Please buy my book, Visual Literacy, now available from Kendall Hall Publishers. Please buy my book. Nobody buys my book. Go ahead and buy my book. What's so weird and actually gratifying is actually highly complimentary is I find myself after watching this movie a dozen times in the last year mm-hmm. and thinking about it endlessly and discussing it and editing these episodes and really listening to us talk about it and all that stuff is I still do want to, I want more. I know. I still do, I do want too. more. I like, I wrote down a note that was like, my overall feelings haven't changed, but I will probably still watch this happily every year i don't think i need to watch it this year since i think i've done enough yeah, I think to cover the it. next seven years of my life but you know if this was on tv i would still sit down and watch it i don't think i'll ever suggest that we watch it but i will definitely see it again i actually think the best summation of this movie came in this podcast from jill knox powell when she said i don't know how to categorize anything about this movie because is this, is anything that happens truly, truly bad? Everyone seems to be operating of their own volition, even though th- their motivations seem wholly unrealistic. But I certainly can't celebrate this movie, and I certainly wouldn't want my daughter to see it and think that this is how relationships form and are healthy. This movie is... And it's kind of what Lulu said about it. Actually, Lulu Papawa said about it. And Lulu, if you're listening, please get at us. We'd love to talk to you. Yes, Lulu. Which it's such a product of its time. Which, when you say that now, I I always feel icky about that because it feels like it's excusing it, which it shouldn't. But you're right. (laughs) Sometimes that's true, though. Like, it's a product of its time is often used to excuse. Like when you say it about people, like they're a product of their time. That's gross. Blanket. People can change. No, you People can, can grow. You are living it's, in it's a the current time. Therefore, point. you should learn what to do now. You are not stuck in 1960. Yeah. You're not Billy Pilgrim. Or maybe you are Billy Pilgrim. You're unstuck in time. Anyway, for a piece of art, any piece of art, it is impossible to analyze it without mm-hmm. placing it firmly in its time that it was made because it's affected yeah. very firmly by the time in which it was made. And this movie, more than average, because of the post 9-11 world that it was it was written in a pre-9-11 world and then filmed mm. and edited in a post-9-11 world and i and i feel like there is something in the emotional desperateness to convey this idea that love is all around us actually and this desperate attempt to connect people and say no no the world isn't terrible the world is a good place full of love and some of that love is ugly, and some isn't dignified, but some of it's beautiful, and some of it's weird, and some of it's weird in the sense of Colin's storyline. That's what I mean by weird. Some of it is magical and because there's magical because there's a ri- witches and Rowan Atkins and might be an angel. Some of it's inexplicable. Some of it's innocent. Some of it's very much not. Some of it's Claudia Schiffer. But it is all around us, and this is the theme of the movie. It's overtly stated at the beginning. The world is not going to hell in a handbasket. People still love each other, even though right now yeah. it feels like it's not. And there's a sort of genuine attempt at 90s optimism mixed with the intense cynicism of the post immediate post-9-11 world that also feels weirdly out of time in 2020 because our cynicism and our optimism are two entirely different animals now. 
Mm-hmm. I, I feel like that, mm, I don't know if that can be the argument, though, because if this was written in a pre-9-11 world where, like, it's not, don't worry, at the end of the day, everything will still be okay, everything's fine, because this terrible thing has happened, but they didn't know this terrible thing was going to happen. Well, that's what I mean. It has this 90s, this late 90s optimism vibe to it. Of this so you're light. saying that, like, it... They were they were feeling very optimistic and happy and sunshiny and don't worry, love is everywhere. And then when we actually then, really needed it, it came out. What I'm saying is, it, that's not right. What I'm saying is it was conceived in a pre-9-11 world, mm-hmm. which could even be like 2000. Mm-hmm. But then filmed, edited, created in a post-9-11 world. So it has this dichotomy where it was created under one version of the world but then you know conceived under one version of the world and then created actually the way movies are in the in another and it tries to transplant that optimism of the late 90s into the early 2000 post 9-11 thing there's like a in the rewriting and the editing there was a, a focus on the positive over the negative so that even the negative stuff is very clear it's very black and white you know Alan Rickman and Emma Thompson's storyline is devastating and tragic, but it's very clean. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a very straight line. He cheats on her. That's pretty simple. Yeah. Everyone can understand that. It isn't confusing. It isn't murky. It isn't insidious. It isn't all these okay. things that we sort of felt as a nation, as a world, after 9-11 happened, at least a Western world. So I feel like part of the the weirdness of the tone of the movie is because this point, we still don't quite know what kind of world we're living in. I mean, I found, I sent you a picture of it, of my yeah, ticket stub. Your ticket stub. I saw this at the AMC Hoffman 22 in Alexandria, Virginia on Sunday, November 23rd, 2003 at a matinee. It costs $7. It's interesting hearing you talk about all this because obviously, like, there is an age difference between you and I. And yes. my understanding of what happened at 9 11, I, I was 11 years old. So. And I didn't come to this movie until I was in high school. And at that point, like, I didn't really have a pre-post 9-11 understanding. I literally had, like, I was a child to mm-hmm. I was in my mother's classroom taking care of her first graders and being told I had to be the big kid to mm-hmm. then, like, being a big kid after that. Mm-hmm. So, like, my... It's interesting just to hear you talk about how like pop culture changed, how the intentions behind what we were consuming in media became focused on like what we needed as a society because I didn't have the the vantage point to understand that at all at that point in my life. Like it and like coming to it at a certain point later but not so late that I'd be coming to it right now. I remember thinking like, "Oh, that's kind of icky" or like, "Oh, I don't like that." Um, but not looking at it so harshly as I am now. It's just... Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting stuff. It's an interesting... It's showing how you approach any piece of art, but like this movie specifically that we've been sort of tearing apart Mm -hmm. and trying to put back together again here, is that experience cannot be denied. I do think this movie will fade as, as it gets older... Because I also think that one of the reasons it survived and survived and survived and survived is because of television. And television might not always be here. Yeah, it's fading. The, you know, obviously there'll be some kind of something in a room that people are watching, you know, a screen and people are watching things on. But the idea yeah. of broadcast television, cable television that this thrived on. 
because you're channel surfing and you come across and you go, oh, absolutely, love actually, I can pick it up wherever. Yeah, you can pick this movie up wherever. Like we said, yeah, it but like the times. only reason I have cable is because I share Wi-Fi and cable with my landlords who live above mm-hmm. me, and I'm not. If I had to voluntarily pay for cable, I probably wouldn't. Sure. Like it's just it's just there. And we so. do, not, and we do not have cable in my house. We have kids instead. <laughs> One or the other, cable or kids. This is the choice you're making. <laughs> my son, hilariously, he's ten is unbelievably susceptible to television advertising because he doesn't see it very often. Mm. But like every night we watch Jeopardy and an ad will come on and, and he'll be like, Dad, you should get a Toyota. <laughs> it's such a pure approach to commercials. It's great. It's so sweet. I love it so much. I'm terrified of it, but I love it. I love it so much. My kids don't understand what commercials are. They watch live TV at their grandparents' house and they're like, this, this, you know, this a commercial comes on in the middle of this episode of this cartoon why they're watching, and they're happening? like, "Why is this stopped?" And my show stopped, and this playing now because they just stream everything. That's their exposure level. So having to actively choose to watch something mm-hmm. instead of flipping through the channels and just discovering something to watch, I think will affect this movie as a destination for people to watch our age and older. It may continue, but after that, I don't know if it'll yeah. if it'll last. It might. People are still talking about it. People are still watching just it. Like, I mean, I, I think Josh hadn't seen the movie just because Josh is not a big Christmas movie person and he's Jewish and that's not a part of what he does every holiday season. Right. But like Solomon is five years younger than me. And so like mm-hmm. if it's already past Solomon's generation, which I feel icky putting him a whole generation behind me but like if it's already past like people who are five years younger than me it's probably not going to catch people who are five years younger than solomon sure it's just not it becomes like your parents movie that movie my parents watched you know and so i don't watch that yeah well ultimately i don't know what what it is except because i also think the ambitions of this movie are not as grand as that have been those that have been placed upon it i really think it's just trying to be a nice movie yeah. about christmas and love and but it it's huge in scope it's got huge stars in it it's a christmas movie and obviously those have legs if they you know if they they catch on they can take on a higher meaning I mean, everyone has Christmas movies they watch every Christmas. Rob Schneider said this is one of his, and, and Kimberly said it was one of hers, and Jay, you know, begrudgingly agreed. Jenna yeah. said, absolutely, this is a movie her family watched, and Rick said that her, her mother <laughs> thinks she likes this movie, but doesn't. So for some people, this is a Christmas movie. It's an mm-hmm. annual Christmas experience, and uh, just like a Christmas story is in our house. I don't know that it was meant to take on all the mantles that we've thrust upon no. it. I don't think Richard Curtis ever imagined that anyone would ever dedicate a 12 part, you know, radio broadcast. Cause it didn't have, I don't think I ever imagined I'd dedicate to this, movie. this much time to this movie. <laughs> <laughs> this is purely cause <laughs> I'm the only one with vision. Everyone else is wearing bifocals. Sure. That's- <laughs> Let's just say that's what it is. I will say, though, I hope you enjoyed listening to us talk about it. I hope I've enjoyed listening to us talk about Beth it. Definitely. So I hope other ha- other people have. We will be back on Christmas Day. Please write in uh, to loveactuallypod at gmail Tell us what you thought. Send us a voice memo. Tell us what you thought of the show. Tell us what you thought about Schiffergate. Go over to iTunes and leave us a rating review. And we'll see you on Christmas Day for Red Nose Day, actually, and one red nose and a wedding. That's, That's the 40s a stupid title. <laughs> well, yeah, the other one 
goes a lot more naturally. I may not always love you, but long as there are stars above you, you never need to doubt it. I'll make you so sure about it. God only knows what I'd be without you. What is Love Actually was produced and edited by Patrick Flynn. We are on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Love Actually Pod. You can follow Patrick Flynn at Unknown Penguin. You can follow Beth Amen at Beth Amen13. Please go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating and review. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can find a link to our PayPal in the show notes. Special thanks to Barnaby Slater of the Almost Famous Podcast for giving us permission to use that clip of his episode with Lulu Popowell. She's Beth Amen. And he's Patrick Flynn. And remember, there was more than one lobster at the birth of Jesus.